0: evening, welcome to episode twenty-one of In at the Side. I'm Dom Harbin, and tonight I'm joined by Neil Williamson and Damian McGrath. How are you this evening, Damian?
1: I'm very well, thank you.
0: Good, good. Um, so obviously we just had a little pre-chat. You're now back out in Germany. Um, the boys are back training in groups. You said, how's that sort of? Uh, how are you dealing with that as a as a uh, as a team?
1: Well, um, Germany's. Uh, a much bigger place than uh, than I realised when I when I arrived here. And most of the players uh, we're based in Heidelberg in Southwest Germany uh, in normal times. But obviously now the players have, have scattered to the different parts of Germany where they're which they call home. Um, so we're having to um, like well, I suppose like every other sports team in the world, we're doing it all by WhatsApp and Zoom and. Uh, the players are training but things have eased here a little earlier than everywhere else and um, you know we're, we're now back in training groups of four or I will be joining them when my uh quarantine's over in uh, five more days uh, and we're hoping that that will be eased again further in the next uh, in the next few days the German government are, are going to make some announcements do
2: you see do you see the sevens season being affected massively this year by it or is it a case of you know, uh, control, log, delete. Just get ready for next year. Now, I mean, what's what's the situation there? On certainly on on your side.
1: Well, uh, from a German perspective, I think all sports teams have been told not to expect into any international competition in 2020. Yeah. Um, and again, I know nothing official, but you hear whisperings on you know in the background that that the seventh season will be very unlikely to start again you know, in this calendar year. Uh, so I know things change on a daily basis and you never, you can never say never, but uh, I think we're trying to psychologically prepare ourselves for the fact that it will be more of a, a local thing if we get back playing and the internationals won't start you know, for several more months.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Um, and obviously, I wanted to touch um, on your you know, long illustrious career. Obviously, you you born in Bradford, um, and also you played a lot of rugby league. Um, was it for for Batley, um, yeah. and then obviously went on to to coach them in the first instance? Mm-hmm. Was that um, I mean, what what was the decision factor there? Were you just fed up for playing? Was it a great opportunity you've been given in the coaching side? What what, what was the, the decision?
1: Well, I uh, I qualified as a teacher, and, and I started teaching. I mean. Rugby league was professional back back in those dark days, um, but only in the sense that we got paid for playing. We we still had jobs. It was semi professional, I suppose. Rugby union was still amateur in theory. Um, it, it didn't take me long once I started playing to realise that you know I, I just wasn't that good. Uh, you know, I could uh, you know, when you when you get close to good players and you watch them play and you you realise you know but no matter how hard you work or how hard you try, you're just not going to be as, as good as them. And and it fascinated me um, always watching good players play and what, what was it they did and how did they do it? And I suppose with a teaching background, moving moving into coaching was a was a, an obvious choice. And when the club offered me the opportunity to be a player coach for the reserves, you know, I jumped mm-hmm. at that chance. And um, from there, uh, I don't know if you, but, there was nothing, there was no full-time rugby people. Um, but Leeds was a very go ahead council. I worked in Leeds city council as a teacher and they had a sports development unit, probably the first in the country and they Mm. they employed development officers in each sport, which was groundbreaking back then. And I was seconded from the teaching uh, to be the rugby league development officer for Leeds and, uh, that connection, um, through coaching, so took me into Leeds Rhinos, uh, you know, from from coaching at Batley, and I've never had a real job since that day back <laughs> in nineteen eighty-nine, I think it was, when I, uh, when I when I which which still still seems like yesterday to me, but is an awful long time ago. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, so I know. So obviously- how do you um go on? Go on, Neil, You're on fire today. Yeah, go hey, on, carry on,
2: on. Carry on. Carry on. i am just these questions come to me. I do apologise. Let's say, obviously, you um your time at Leeds, you know, you think it was at two, you you're at two Challenge Cup finals, um,
1: including the last ever final at the old Wembley. That's right. Twenty-one years ago, last yeah. uh, I think yesterday or the day before.
2: What was that like walking out there on that I, day? Uh,
1: that was that was awesome. That was, I mean, it's every it, or it was every boy's dream to to be at Wembley and play at Wembley and. You know, I was never going to get there as a player, but um, you know, I was fortunate enough to go there as a coach at that last ever Wembley and it'll stay with me forever because it was, you know, a wonderful, a wonderful day. Just the whole thing was wonderful. Yeah. Uh,
0: where do you think you uh where do you think the sport of uh, rugby league stands at the moment? Obviously, they've had a bit of a relief fund from the government um in the UK. Um, but sort of overall, where do you where do you see it? You know, its growth.
1: Um I see Rugby League as its own worst enemy, having stepped away from it, having been part of it for so long. and yeah. It really is, it, it is a northern powerhouse in terms of its uh, support base. And it's one of those things that um, everybody can, who's involved cannot understand why everybody else doesn't like it, but they're very protective. They don't want anybody else to get involved. Hence the, the big issues over Toronto and, uh, and the French teams, Catalan being involved they want the world to, to, you know, to recognize them as a great sport, but they don't want anybody interfering in what they do. <laughs> um, and that, that to a degree has been, a, a you know, has held it back in as the, as, you know, sports evolved, uh, in general. Um, I don't think moving to summer was a, was a great, a great move for them. Uh, you know, I, I still think they would have been stronger as a, as a winter sport and building on its strengths, but, um, they are struggling in in this modern um, modern sporting economic uh, landscape to to make themselves to make themselves viable i think they rely far too heavily on sky sports and and everything you know they they've been too innovative sometimes and they're also following australia where it is the national sport you know rugby league is so big over yeah. in australia and i think you know they they're trying too much to emulate that instead of building their own identity but you know that's only me speaking from from outside looking in now
0: so yeah they uh, they need to develop the product a bit more would you say
1: oh, it's full of incredibly talented people and there are so many young players uh well you know if, if you get around watching the amateur game and they're still full of talented talented young players um from a you know still from that working class background and it always amazes me um that that England rugby doesn't spend more time looking there, you know. Not that I'd want them to to undermine the strength of the game, but I, back when um, when I was with the last time I was involved with England sevens was with Simon Amor. Um, Simon and I talked with Joe Lydon. Talk, you know, it was a, it was one of the former rugby league greats who was performance director at the time. We talked about, you know, wouldn't it make sense to go looking for those talented halfbacks and uh playmakers from rugby league who at 16 and 17 would be right to be you know to get involved in the game and have chance to you know to learn the game a bit like jason Robinson did when he changed over to sale you know he sale were very clever in that they spent time working on him before he was unleashed on things and i i i always thought you know that that would have been the way to go but
2: do you, do you think that um, obviously having worked with both codes, um, coached in both codes, and, and obviously played mm-hmm. as well, um, would you say it'd be easier for a rugby league player to transgress into sevens or rugby union? What do you think is the most sort of transferable skills?
1: Well, at this moment in time, I think it's, it's really, really difficult to go from 15s into sevens. Mm. Um, as the last Olympics showed when Sonny Bill and Brian Habana quicker, but you know because it was new, everybody wanted to play in it. And you know, I I was coaching Samoa in the World Series at the time, and I know how how much those players struggled. You know, Sunny Bill, yes, you know, he was a good player, but he was he wasn't anything outstanding. I yeah. I remember Dan Norton almost jogging at the side of Stuart Hogg in the Commonwealth Games. You know, he made a break, and and Dan, you know, chased him down in a heartbeat. And you know, he's and I, you know that's not to decry what Stuart does and what he can do, but the, no. the fitness levels and speed of sevens um, is is such that it's harder to come in and I think rugby league it's it's a closer version to rugby league is sevens than, than the fifteens. Yeah. No,
0: so uh, so how did that transition come then into the uh, into the sevens scene Because you sort of sort of move there and seemingly never never look back
1: yeah well um, Leeds Rhinos changed coaches in two thousand um, and I was also assistant coach of the Great Britain team at the World Cup in, in 2000. And uh, the new coach who came in from Australia wanted to bring his own staff. And I got an opportunity to move to London Broncos um, with when Richard Branson had taken them over. And they spent a fortune bringing over some big stars from uh, the Australian Rugby League, from the NRL. Um, and I had a fabulous year down there in London, but it was it was <laughs> it seems ridiculous now having spent so long around the world but you know just being a, i'm back to how small the rugby league world was just being down in london away from home i found really difficult and uh, <laughs> i was looking at, at what i could do to get back home and joe lyden who i mentioned earlier joe had, um he'd left being performance director at the rugby league to go and work with uh, in the england set up under sir clive woodward and Joe uh, and Ellery Hanley, uh, another you know all-time great rugby league player, was also involved at the time. And Ellery left, and Joe said, "There's a uh, the sevens, So we're back to 2001 now, 2000, 2001. The sevens world series was just taking off, and Joe being put in charge of that, he said, "We're looking for um, for someone to come on and do skills and defence with the sevens, and also work um, in the England A setup because England A had a." A six nations back at that time on a, at the same time as a senior team and it said do skills and defense with the England A. Uh, Phil Larder was the, the big wheel in, in the you know defense world then back in rugby and there was hardly anybody else I don't think they'd come across then and, and I joined and I, I from thinking that going to London was a, a huge trip I was suddenly traveling the world on the sevens um you know with england day doing things around the country and you know, different you know six nations to italy and I, I just that's i sort of stumbled into it rather than any any plan and i had to it was difficult because again because now the, the code seemed so close and, and everybody accepts that there's this you know it's a two-way thing but back then there was a you know rugby union hadn't been long professional mm. there was lots of people there who still saw rugby league as a, you know, if you were involved, you were signed I in rugby. You couldn't be. Even back when I was development officer, we we tried to use the local rugby club a couple of times for evening sessions, uh, when we had guest coaches and the clubs wouldn't let us because the RFU, you know, banned them from any, it was, it it was still close to that. And so it was, it was difficult to, for me to, to come in and, uh, to sort of prove myself, you know, I, I, I didn't want to come in as the big know-all. I had to try and you know work and I had to learn the game as well as try and uh, you know make a difference as well so that's, that's how it, it came to be and again it, it's amazing how it, choice or chance you know the chance meeting with John Wells who was uh, the, one of the big drivers at Leicester Tigers in those days when they were winning all before them you know with Dean Richards. John was the forwards coach with England A and, he got me involved with the Tigers then as as skills coach. And uh, yeah, I, now that was a, a learning environment. I could tell you that was, you know, how to learn on the, on the move. So I had a you know, really interesting introduction to, to rugby. I, but through the back of all that, the sevens was always the sort of spine of everything that you did. You know, that, I enjoyed that the most because it was closer to rugby league, but, um, you know, it allowed me to do other things as well.
2: Awesome.
1: Would you say, um,
2: there's anyone, I mean, this is a bit of a throwaway question, I suppose, but is there anyone in the union, uh, any of the union teams at the moment that you, you would think, God, I wish he was German or oh, hell, he'd be good at sevens, you know, <laughs> like, you now, know,
1: was, it's, a, it's a bit of a random question, but. In, yeah. the, in the England, to set up Oh, lot, yeah.
2: Y- yeah. I mean, is there anything you think, bloody hell, I wish I could just nick him, just change coach <laughs> to sevens.
1: Matt, I thought that when I was in Canada and Samoa before me though, you know, I wish, <laughs> There, there are so many talented young players in the UK alone. I, you know, I, I did a stint in in Wales as head of rugby at, in North Wales at RGC, you know, was the the North Wales region. And the the you know to say it was seen as a development region, there were so many talented young players there, and, and many of them have gone on to play down in the South of Wales. Yeah. But you know, the UK is so lucky, and I, I sometimes feel that we don't realise how blessed we are with talent and, and I just feel sometimes we toss away players and, and sevens, I think it'd be a great vehicle to get lots of those players who, who, who don't make the cut involved. In, well, we were touched
2: on this the other day that um, certainly New Zealand seem to, not officially, but use sevens as a bit of a springboard for the, the young players, for their national team. Is that something you'd like to bring in with every country possibly, oh, like a third country rugby in sevens?
1: Yeah, it, it's different the world over. In, in Samoa, and I think Fiji is probably the same, Tonga, Sevens is a gateway to the world for them. It's a, it's a chance, I mean, they love that that type of game because it's all action things, but their best players play Sevens because it gets them a, a profile um, across the world. And they move to, usually they're looking for a big 15s contract, and then that brings them back into the Fiji national setup. And I I think, you know, the way Sevens it before, you know, everything happened, that seventies a perfect place to do that. You know, if you're a young player, come and play in front of huge crowds, and you know, mm. understand pressure and and you know, work on the basic skills, yeah. get the speed and fitness, and and show yourself to a, a bigger audience. You know, I think if if I had, I was lucky enough to be involved in a fifteens franchise somewhere, that would be a place I would look for because there's some serious talent. Mm. Argentina, you know, they they're very good at. at bringing all their best under 20 players in in as a group and giving them a couple of years on the circuit you know they 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 change their talent on a regular basis and i think i think it's a great way to do
2: it. yeah I was well, jk would be gutted he missed you because he's actually german um, and does oh, play yeah. sevens, and does play seven so he would have been trying to sell himself yeah. into you i'm sure yeah. but uh, i'm sure we can yeah. catch him another time. <laughs> um I've been asking a, a, most of our, uh, most, if not all of our guests, uh, lockdown related question. Uh, it is related to rugby as well. Um, mm-hmm. Bit of a, a scenario or a situation for you. Um, you've got to go into lockdown with one player that you've coached, right? You've, you're in lockdown for two weeks. Um, people are bringing you food. You literally cannot leave the house. You can't even go out for your exercise or anything like that. Who out of anyone you've ever coached would be an absolute nightmare. For two weeks, who would make it a living hell, and why?
1: Oh, uh, <laughs> be careful what I say. I? Um, <laughs> I think uh, Jake Teal, who's a young player in Canada, who a very talented player, incredibly funny, yeah. but the most insecure person I've ever met. And <laughs> you know, you know the old fashion thing: does my bum look big in this? He, he's a, a bit like a male <laughs> version of that. He's no, he, he's always, he's always worried that he's not quite there when he, you know, he's, he's a, he's a yeah. great guy and a very talented person, but man, his insecurities would drive me back. <laughs>
2: Fair enough. And uh, on the flip side, who would, who would you like, who would you make it a breeze? Who do you think two weeks,
1: oh, I'd have four weeks, six weeks with this person? Um, oh, probably the coolest guy I've ever met, Nate Uriama. Uh, I, I don't think you'd, Nate's one of those guys who I think, uh, Again, I only know him as coach to player, but you know, low maintenance. Yeah. Not much bothers him. You know, he he's very uh, he's very calm and collected in, in just about every circumstance. And uh, I think he'd be a, a good guy to to live it through with. Awesome.
0: Now, yeah, just, where... um, sorry, go on. I'm just going to uh, whilst we're on little uh, Neil style questions. Um, <laughs> you give us a top three convert from League to Union players.
1: Well, well, Jason Robertson, I think, it would be a
0: yeah number one,
1: an absolute blinder. Um, I thought Sam Burgess was was much better than the press he, he received uh, in the speed.
0: centre. Playing uh, in
1: the pack, um, I think in the centre he would have would a decent job. Yeah, um, from back in the day, and Ashton, I think uh, Chris yeah. Ashton, yeah. I'm very difficult. I think it's much easier to go from union to league than it is from league to union. So, you know, I, I, my time with with England also coincided with Henry Paul and uh, and Faz Andy Farrell uh, coming across. Um, neither I think received the, the plaudits that they deserve. But you know, Faz, one of the all time great players, I was lucky enough to work with him in rugby league in that two thousand World Cup. You
0: know.
1: I, It doesn't surprise me that he's a head coach because you know he's a real Martin Johnson type figure but you know I don't think he at the time he came across I'm not so sure he had time to adapt and and play. Henry was ultra talented uh, but played off the cuff to a large degree and I remember him running to the line as you would in rugby league but rugby union at that time hadn't gone that far it was still a game of depth and, and space trying to create space and I remember him showing the ball and looking for runners and getting clobbered or throwing the <laughs> ball away, and, and he, he received he received lots of uh, you know negative press. But I, I'm not so sure the game, you know, he was allowed to develop in the game enough to to play at the level they wanted him to play at. so soon.
2: That's the thing. Sometimes they're thrown in at the deep end, aren't they? And it's it can be quite a cutthroat. <laughs> um industry can't it? Rugby, oh, I mean, oh, you know,
1: yeah, and I, I understand why they did it, I mean you pay big money for them, you know, then you expect a return on it. Um yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but I don't think the the thought process was there enough to to give them time to develop.
2: Well along those lines, I mean we, we um uh Dodge Sevens we work uh, in conjunction with the company uh, Marshalling Men's Minds um and we promote mental health awareness. Um we're going to all these different you know festival tournaments all over the UK. Now this is something we brought up with a few of our guests uh, predominantly with um, you know rugby union um and we've also we've always asked is there like a, a good support structure for players um in terms of mental health um, is, is is there a, is there a good support structure in sevens um structure for that sort of thing you think or is there a long way to go um i
1: think there's a long way to go i, I think individual teams look at um look at mental wellbeing i'm not I'm not too sure whether they do it uh, from a player welfare point of view as, as much as, you know, being focused enough to win. There's a lot about growth mindset and about that winning mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only, uh, it, it's, it's fairly recent, isn't it? That player welfare side of things and yeah. players personal wellbeing and how they deal with things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned Jake Teal, and I, I you know, just mentioning, you know, Jake's insecurities, which we laugh at and, you know, mm. we both laugh together about him. Um, mm. But, you know, those sort of things are real. You you, you can't take for granted that everybody's dealing with things in the right way. And I think it's, uh, in this modern times, it's something that has to be at the forefront of, of everything we do. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I'm, I'm sure you're saying, I know too many people who've, who've not been able, you know, strong enough to be able to take it and have, uh, you know, gone too far. It's it's something we have to be aware of all the time.
2: And that's the thing. I mean, with, with um, obviously the lockdown that we're in at the moment, unfortunately, in terms of people's mental states, it can only get worse, can't it?
1: Until we're Absolutely. Yeah. Normal.
2: Um, so it's just something that I think we've all got to notice in our friends, in our family. and But I think yeah. we are. You know, It's opened up. The one positive from this, and I have said it on a couple of podcasts before, but I will keep reiterating it. The one positive from this lockdown period is that everyone... Ironically, is talking more through social media. You know, yeah. used to take the concentration away now. how everyone's WhatsApping, Skyping, you know, Zooming that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's hopefully we can we can carry on being as close to each other
1: afterwards. I hope so. I hope, I hope that that personal <laughs> connection stays because you know it's not always evident that people are struggling and having troubles, and it's only through talking to them that uh, you can maybe get an inkling there's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Well, on that, Damien. Well, um, I think we'll end on that lovely, lovely note. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate you coming it? on.
1: Oh, it's great to talk yeah. to
0: someone.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're more than welcome to come back on when we've got some rugby to talk about and when things start kicking off again. We'd love to uh, have you back on for a, an update and a roundup.
1: Lovely. I'd love to do that. Thank you. Thanks for for asking me, and I've enjoyed it. All no no right. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you.